Well, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, happy Easter. I'm uh, so grateful today to be able to have this Easter worship in English. Um, you know, I, I love coming to worship. I, I love being here each Sunday. Uh, but Easter is a special day. In fact, Easter is, I think, my favorite day of the year. As you may know, um, you know, the reason Christians gather together on Sundays, the reason we worship on Sundays, isn't because it's the weekend. Um, it's actually because it's on Sunday that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. That's the reason that we meet on Sunday. But on Easter, we remember the specific Sunday on which Jesus was resurrected. Now, we don't necessarily know the exact date, although actually I will say I was just reading a, uh, an article written by two scholars who they believe that the date was um, uh, AD 33, April 3rd. So they actually have gone based on information, historical information we have. So some scholars are willing to actually say, I believe this is the day that Jesus died on and thus they would know which day he rose on. But the Bible doesn't say what the day specifically was. But in any event, we do know for sure, without a doubt, it was at this time. And so it's a very special day. And so I hope that you can feel a sense of that joy as we rem uh, remember the risen Lord today. But this brings us back to our uh, reading this morning, the risen Lord encountering Mary. So just a few days before this, um, on Friday, Jesus was crucified. So he had been slandered, he was tortured, and he was murdered on the cross by powerful people who hated him and they hated his message. But here on the third day, he is risen from the dead. On the third day, Jesus is alive again. Now, I, I want to be clear here that when we say Jesus is risen, we do not mean merely resuscitated. Okay? Uh, it's not like God had done some kind of like supernatural CPR on Jesus and brought him back to life, right? That's not what we're talking about here. To say Jesus is risen from the dead means that he is transformed to new life. He has overcome death itself. He can never die again. His body itself is changed. The description of Jesus' uh, resurrection in the New Testament makes it clear that we're talking about the same Jesus, and yet there's something very distinct about him. It's the same Jesus, and yet he's kind of different. He's the same Jesus, yet he's new in some way. He is, uh, the way the, the New Testament describes it is he is the first taste of the general resurrection and the new creation that God has promised throughout the entire Bible. And so having been resurrected in this way, you know, this, he is the first one to experience the resurrection of the dead. Jesus is the first. That's why he's called the first fruits. He is the first. He's the first taste. So being the first, you would think the first words he says are pretty important, right? You know, you remember maybe um, Neil Armstrong, he landed on the moon. Now that's a big occasion for all humanity. And obviously he doesn't just get on the moon and say, uh, oh, this is pretty cool. You know, he prepares some special words, right? He says, you know, uh, it's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Famous words. And he had prepared, you know, something like that to say, because this is a big occasion. Now, that's very common. We mark important historical moments with important words. But what are Jesus' first words, according to John? I mean, he is just resurrected from the dead. The new creation has begun. This is the climax of the entire biblical story, we might say, right? And what are his first words in John? Two simple questions. Woman, why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? 
Why are you weeping and whom are you seeking? Not as we might expect for him to say, you know, I'm victorious. I've overcome death. Here's the proof. Look at me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the son of God, the Lord, just like I said, right? That's not what he does. That's not what he says. He asks two questions. Why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? And I want to suggest to you today that that's not an accident. You know, it's not just happenstance, just chance that uh, Mary just happened to be there. And so that's what he says. I don't think that's what it is. Jesus chose this time and these words, and just like they were meaningful for Mary, they remain meaningful for us today because they show us two things about the risen Jesus. The risen Jesus is the answer to our suffering and the object of our searching. He's the answer to our suffering and the object of our searching. So first, Jesus is the answer to our suffering. So to understand why Mary is weeping here, you need to first understand Mary's predicament. We need to understand Mary's problem. And to understand that, there's kind of three things that you need to know about Mary's life. First, according to Luke chapter 8 and verse 2, Jesus had cast out seven demons from Mary. Now, some commentators believe that this number represents fullness. So that saying she had seven demons basically means she was full of demonic activity, engulfed in it. In any event, Uh, We need to realize what this demonic possession meant for Mary. Now, first of all, demonic possession in, in the Gospels is accompanied. It always has all kinds of physical and mental and emotional problems along with it, right? So Mary is experiencing with this extreme suffering. If she has seven demons in her, she's got some extreme suffering going on. It's also likely that she was an outcast from society, probably living in unpleasant conditions because if she's possessed by demons, she can't really do, you know, the normal things that a person would do to live. Few at the time, if anybody, could have cared for her in any meaningful way. And probably most people were afraid, right? I mean, if you saw a demonic person, you'd probably be afraid of them. You don't want to get near that person. So when Jesus casts out these demons from Mary, he totally changes her life, right? So it's not a surprise that she would be deeply devoted to Jesus. Of course she would be. Second, remember also that Mary is a woman in first century Jewish culture. Now, I understand that we have a hard time understanding this in modern culture today. Right? We, uh, I mean, we might, maybe, you know, we might talk about like there's obviously some disparity between the way women and men are treated and so on. But in this time, it's kind of hard for us to, to, to think about how poorly they were treated. Uh, They were treated as second-class citizens. Most Jewish teachers, okay, a rabbi would not even teach the Bible to women. They thought that it was not appropriate to teach the Bible to a woman. And women were not even considered useful in the court of law. So as a witness, they were basically your last choice. If you had nobody else, maybe you would go to a woman, but that's it. Because they were considered just emotional and you couldn't really trust them. That's the way that they were thought about. So on top of being oppressed by demons, (laughs) Mary was also a woman, which made her predicament that much worse. So when Jesus embraces her as part of his ministry, which we see in uh, Luke chapter 8, we also see it in Matthew 27, he has done something that other rabbis would never have done. But finally, we have to understand too why Jesus or or what Mary was thinking when she followed Jesus. Mary followed Jesus as the Messiah. So she thought Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Messiah that was promised. But she had seen him tortured and killed Right in front of her, right? She had seen him tortured and killed on the cross right in front of her. She was there to see it. So this great teacher who had healed her, this great teacher who 
embraced her and even taught her and treated her with respect. This great teacher, who she thought was the Messiah sent from God, has just been crucified, killed. Now, the first, no first century Jew expected that the Messiah would be killed, let alone resurrected. That's just not, that was not what they expected. If you thought a person was the Messiah, so if you said, okay, that's, that's the Messiah, what you expected was that he was going to overthrow the Roman government and lead Israel to a place of power and influence again. They were going to be number one in the world again, the great nation. So if the person you thought was the Messiah ends up being killed, that's proof. That is the proof, all the proof you need that he is not the Messiah after all, right? When, when, when Mary saw him killed on the cross, it was not just personally devastating, but it also proved that he was not who they thought he was. So for Mary, the death of Jesus is a tragedy. It's a personal disaster. I mean, just imagine her emotions. Imagine Mary's emotions here. She had lost everything. This one who, the one person who had treated her with respect, the one person who had loved her when she was at her very lowest and who had saved her and even healed her has just been brutally murdered in front of her. That's what she has experienced. And now the body has been stolen. She can't even secure a proper burial for Jesus. The body's not even there anymore. So you can imagine Mary's emotions here. She's feeling completely lost. She's feeling hopeless. Like every good thing she ever had, every good thing she had ever hoped for was in just a matter of a couple of days, completely ripped out of her hands and totally removed from her life. So with that in mind, Jesus' question might seem, you know, kind of absurd. Why are you weeping? (laughs) What do you mean, why are you weeping? It's obvious why she's weeping. Obviously, she thought Jesus was dead. And now his body's even gone, maybe stolen. So why would Jesus ask her this question? And I think it's easy to kind of pass over these words without much thought, right? We kind of just assume like Jesus is just sort of playing with her in some way, maybe kind of hiding his identity a little bit until she can figure it out, just kind of seeing how long it'll take her. But I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. Rather, this question, this why are you weeping, is really not so much a question as much as it is, I think, a very gentle correction. It's not really a question. It's a gentle correction. Jesus is not asking, why are you weeping? Because he's trying to get information for Mary. He's asking, why are you weeping? Because he's trying to get her to understand that there is no need for weeping at this point. But I want you to understand this next point because it's, it's really the crux of the matter. <laughs> you know, to make a play on words there, the crux, the, the cross. But anyway, the, uh, the, the center of the matter here, the, the really main point. Sorry for the dad joke there. But the, the, main, the main point here is, is this. The reason she no longer needs to weep is not because Jesus is no longer dead. The reason she no longer needs to weep is because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Okay, let me say that again because there's a distinction here and it's important. The reason she no longer needs to weep is not because Jesus is no longer dead. The reason she no longer needs to weep is because Jesus has been raised from the dead. So earlier I made a point and I want to expand on that for a moment here. When we say Jesus was raised from the dead, we don't mean that he was resuscitated. Like I said, it's not like God had done some sort of supernatural CPR on Jesus and just brought him back to life. When we say Jesus was raised from the dead, we, we mean he experienced a completely new kind of human existence. He's still human. Don't misunderstand. He's human. But his human life is transformed into a kind that has transcended death itself. He has defeat death itself. 
Now, most Jews in the first century, they believe that there would be a resurrection of the righteous dead in the future, at the end of time. So they believe that. They believe that one day that resurrection would come. That one day God would bring back to, to life uh, all of his people and give them new life. In fact, we see that with um, Mary and Martha when they're talking to Jesus after Lazarus has died. And, you know, Jesus says, you know, don't you believe that he's going to live? And she's like, well, of course, I know that one day he'll live again, you know, when the resurrection comes. She's like, sure, that day far off from now, but not right now. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, right? So they believed in that future resurrection. Now, we're not talking here about zombies. Sometimes people say this. I've seen it online. People talk about, like, they, they say in an insulting way, kind of zombie Jesus. That's not what this is. That is not at all what we're talking about here. We're talking about a glorious resurrection. In this future resurrection, any sickness, any wound, any problem would be made right. In the resurrection, everything would be made right. And it's not just humans, but all of creation. Um, the, the way that Frodo says it in the Lord of the Rings, he says, everything sad will become untrue. Everything sad becomes untrue. Everything that was sad ceases to be. And we have this, this new creation filled with God's presence, God, God's righteousness, God's joy. But... That resurrection is supposed to happen at the end of time. And it was supposed to happen to everyone all at once. It's not something that happens to one person in the middle of human history. There was no expectation of that. None. Certainly not for the Messiah. There was no expectation that Messiah would die and resurrect in the middle of human history. But the New Testament tells us that that's exactly what happened to Jesus. What would one day happen to all of God's people and all of creation happened to Jesus in advance on that first Easter day. And that is what Jesus is trying to get at with this question. Why are you weeping? Jesus is saying, Mary, don't you see? I'm alive again and I can never die again. No one can kill me. I've defeated sin. I've defeated death. I've defeated evil. And I am living proof of the Father's promises. You don't need to cry. You can celebrate. And what was true for Mary is true for us. You know, I don't have to tell you how full of evil and suffering this world is. I mean, even if you don't have something in your life right now that's really, really bad, just look at the news, watch the news, read, read the news online, and you can see all kinds of horrible things, all kinds of bad things. But some of you probably have experienced the worst things in this world, right? You may have experienced abuse. You may have experienced hate. You may have experienced, you know, sickness and death. Maybe, you know, in your, well, maybe not death, but you've experienced maybe sickness in your case, but death of a loved one, maybe, even if it's not your own death, you've, you've faced the death of people you love. You've experienced the loss, maybe, of all your hopes and your dreams. Maybe you've been betrayed, you've been oppressed, you've been mistreated, you've dealt with injustice. But Jesus has risen from the dead, and that means our weeping can be turned to joy. And that's because Jesus is the proof that God is going to make everything right. Jesus is the proof that, yes, everything sad will come untrue. Jesus is the proof that the absolute worst evil of this world will not have the final say. Just as God gave Jesus victory and justice, so he will give victory and justice to everyone who is in Jesus. But see, the thing is, it's not that just Jesus undoes our suffering, like takes it away, but he actually explains our suffering. See, the reason Jesus' resurrection is so wonderful is not just because some person rose from the dead. That's not what makes it so special. What makes it so special is specifically that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. It's the specific person who rose from the dead. 
The same Jesus who was born in poverty, the same Jesus who was born under an oppressive government, the same Jesus who was rejected even by some of his own family, the same Jesus who was betrayed by his closest friends, the same Jesus who was tortured, who was murdered, that same Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. And his resurrection is all the more wonderful precisely because of all of that suffering and evil, right? If Jesus had lived a long, nice, comfortable life full of riches and blessings and then had died and then rose from the dead, I mean, that would be interesting. But it's a lot more interesting because he went through so much suffering and especially the suffering of the cross and then rose from the dead. It shows that the worst the world could offer, Jesus still defeated And so Jesus' resurrection shows us not only that God will undo the evil and pain of the world, but that he will actually use the evil and pain of the world as tools to make our future even more glorious. God will use what may seem like unimaginable suffering now to produce unimaginable glory and joy in the future. Now, that doesn't mean that God wants us to suffer now or that God wants there to be evil now, but it does mean that he has the power to redeem those things and use it to bring joy. So like Mary, we're going to face times in this life that seem filled with unbearable pain. Like Mary, we may find ourselves in the shadow of death. We may find ourselves feeling hopeless, feeling lost. But like Mary, we could still hear the gentle voice of our Lord. Why are you weeping? Not because it's wrong to weep. In fact, it's actually right to weep at times. Jesus wept. Remember? We have that verse in the Bible at Lazarus' tomb. Jesus wept. So it's not wrong to weep, but Jesus wants to remind us that the day is coming when he will make everything right. The day is coming when weeping and crying will be no more. And that's not just a fairy tale. That's not just some stupid story somebody made up a long time ago. It is proven by his resurrection from the dead. Now that leads to Jesus' second question, who are you seeking? So he asked, why are you weeping? But then he asked, who are you seeking? And again, this seems like an odd question. I mean, obviously Jesus knows who she's looking for. But again, Jesus is not toying with Mary. He's not playing games. Like any good rabbi, he is teaching her. And just like the first question was, we said, a gentle correction, the second question is a gentle invitation, a gentle challenge to consider what she has been expecting. Jesus is wanting to open her eyes to recognize that as devoted as she was to him, and she was very devoted, but as devoted as she was, as highly as she thought of him, yet her view of him him was still far too small. As we said, the Messiah who Mary and everyone else at the time had expected was a Messiah who would destroy Rome, defeat Rome, lead Israel to a glorious position on the earth once again. But Jesus had to come to do something way better than that. He came to defeat sin and death itself. He came to launch the full project of God's kingdom in which the glory and goodness of God fills all creation. He had come to launch God's work of new creation. It started with Jesus. The new creation began already with Jesus. So Mary loved Jesus. She loved him. She was totally devoted to him, even in his death. Yet she still did not grasp his full glory. And neither did anyone else. So the question, who are you seeking, is not simply about the name of the person he was looking for. It points further to all of her expectations and all of her hopes. And just as Jesus still asked that first question to us today, he also still asks the second. Who are you seeking? You know, so often in our search for meaning, in our search for understanding and truth, 
we kind of like Mary let our expectations, we let our assumptions prevent us from seeing what's right in front of us. I mean, here was Jesus, right? Jesus is here standing right in front of Mary and yet she doesn't recognize him. Now, I've seen this sometimes. You may have seen a video like this before. Sometimes there's like a famous person, maybe an actor or a singer or something like that. And they go out on the street and they talk to people. And I mean, it can be somebody super famous and the person has absolutely no idea. There's actually kind of a famous um, joke with the uh, skater, Tony Hawk. And it's kind of become a sort of funny thing now. But Tony Hawk, people would come up to him and say, has anybody told you you look like Tony Hawk? (laughs) And so they'll say that. And it is Tony Hawk, but they don't realize it. And that's the point that nobody expects to see that famous person. So they're literally talking to the person and they say, oh, you look like Tony Hawk. Well, it is him, right? And that's kind of how we are. But the problem, why do people do that? Why, why is there that confusion? Well, it's expectations. That's it. It's our expectations. We don't expect to see that famous person. So when we see them, we just assume it can't be them. I would never see a person like that, right? And that same issue can prevent us from seeing Jesus, So Jesus is inviting us with this question to reconsider our assumptions about the world, about God, about ourselves. He's saying, reconsider what your assumptions are. So Jesus asks us too, who are you seeking? Or perhaps we might say, what are you seeking? You know, some people might say they're seeking the truth. But Jesus shows us through his death and resurrection that he is the truth, just like he claimed to be. Some today would say they're seeking to find themselves. I just want to know who, who am I really? Who, who, who am I really, right? That's what people want to know. But I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. C.S. Lewis says, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are waiting for us in him. It is no good trying to be myself without him. See, the true self, the person I really am, the person I was made to be is found only in Jesus Christ. So if I'm seeking myself, if I want to know who I really am, then I must first seek Jesus Christ. So you see, no matter what you think you're searching for, Jesus is the true object of that search. Jesus is what we're really looking for. But like Mary, we have to first get aside our our expectations, all of our assumptions, and see Jesus for who he is. And just like with Mary, the resurrection can open our eyes to that. If we realize that Jesus is risen from the dead, if Jesus Christ really rose from the dead, then everything he said about himself is true. If Jesus Christ really rose from the dead, then I have to listen to him. If Jesus Christ really rose from the dead, then he is who he claimed to be. And if he's not, nothing he said matters. I can just totally ignore him if I want to. So it's all hinges on that. But if I see that he's alive, when I realize that he is truly alive, truly the living Lord, truly God's son, then I'll realize that he's always who I've really been searching for. He is who he's been searching for. And just like Mary, that at the same time, it destroys our expectations. It even destroys our hopes. But then it replaces them with something infinitely greater and more beautiful. And you see, this is the wonder and the power and the beauty of the resurrection of Jesus. In the resurrection of Jesus, we find the answer to the problem of human suffering and pain. The answer to the problem of pain is not that we need to remove all of our desires. Just get rid of all your desires and then that will make life good. Nor is the answer that suffering is just a byproduct of a meaningless universe. The answer is found in the resurrection of Jesus. God has already dealt suffering and evil its death blow. And in the end, he will use all suffering and evil to bring about even more beauty and glory than we can now imagine. 
And in the resurrection of Jesus, we come to see what, or rather who, we have always been searching for. The God who gives life. The God who gives new life. The God who smashes our expectations and gives us even greater joy than we ever could have hoped for. And when we come to see Jesus as he really is, when we come to understand the glory of Jesus' resurrection, then our natural response is going to be like Mary, to embrace him, right? When we realize that Jesus is the risen Lord, our natural response is to embrace him as he is. Now, Mary couldn't embrace him forever. Jesus had a task for her, just as he has a task for us, to go and tell others. But the day is coming when, resurrected in a resurrection like his, living in the new world that he has prepared for his people, surrounded only in the glory and beauty and love of God, we will forever embrace him and he will forever embrace us. But that promise is only to those who have embraced Jesus as Mary did. He's not going to force us to love and follow him. He respects our free choice, right? He doesn't make us decide we're going to follow him. We can choose to embrace other things. We can choose to hold on to our old ways of thinking, We can choose to hold on to those idols that we worship instead. We can continue crying in the dark. But Jesus invites us to realize that he is the answer to the deep questions we all struggle with. Why are we weeping? What are we looking for? He is still alive, still before us as the risen Lord, and he is still the answer to those questions. And if we will embrace Jesus, if we will become his disciple through baptism and faith, we will find that the answer to our suffering The object of our searching is right there in front of us. And we will find that new life that God has promised beginning in our lives right now. Let's close with a prayer. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for this day. And Lord, we thank you so much for the resurrected Jesus. God, this world is so full of death and suffering, and sometimes we look at it and it's just hard to understand. It's hard to accept There's just so much, not just suffering, but evil. People doing evil things and we just don't understand it. But Lord, in the resurrection, we see an answer. And in the resurrection, we see hope. Lord, we thank you for that. Thank you for answering our questions through the resurrection. And thank you for giving us the hope of the resurrection. Of course, we know that our answers specifically may not all be answered. We may not understand every specific instance of why you may allow this or that. But We do know that one day you are going to make things right. And we do know that there is a hope beyond all of this, just as we see in Jesus. Thank you so much for that hope, Lord. Thank you for the joy of the resurrected Lord. And I pray that that joy, Father, would fill our hearts today and throughout the coming week. And that that joy would encourage us to embrace uh, Jesus more deeply and to tell others about it just as Mary did. Thank you, Father, for... um, showing us that we can have joy even in the midst of pain. And thank you for showing us who we've really been searching for. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.